0: We continue on this morning in our series on Job. And I said last week that we'd be talking this morning about the error, the theological error that Job's friends swallowed and proclaimed that was such a difficulty for Job. You remember the story starts with Job as a righteous man and a rich man, a man who was prospering in the favor of the Lord. And then one day God boasted to Satan about Job and Satan responded that the only reason Job was worshiping God is because God had sheltered him from troubles and was making everything in his life so smooth and easy. And so God gave Satan permission to bring about severe calamities in Job's life. And indeed, his children were all killed in one day. His wealth was lost. He was struck with painful sores over all his body. But then the last wave of Job's persecutions or suffering came about through his three friends who came with the idea of comforting him but ended up confronting him and criticizing him and even castigating him. They did this because of an erroneous assumption that they made as to the reason behind Job's sufferings. Even though they'd never seen Job act wickedly, and even though they had never heard any report of him doing so, they concluded that because he was suffering so intensely and for such an extended time, he must have acted wickedly Job twenty verse four to eleven gives us a little glimpse of this kind of reasoning that they used to try to confront job and uh, let me just say at this point that you know uh there are nine chapters of these three friends trying to confront Job. Obviously, I can't read all nine chapters. And all I can give you is a little taste to talk about this subject. I'm hoping that you've read Job before and you have some grasp of this. Or that you will read it if you haven't. But but this is just one little sampling of the the... Theological reasoning that was behind their confrontation of Job. Job 20, verse 4. Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exulting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, Where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision in the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more. Nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. So here, one of the three friends, Zophar, is saying that what has happened to Job is the kind of thing which happens to wicked, godless people. They may look high and mighty for a little while, but they come crashing down and become like nothing. They lose all their wealth and they get so low that their children will look up to the poor and ask for help. They're so low. You know, it's like that old expression that they, they, uh, they had to reach up to scrape bottom. Job, of course, Disputed their insinuations that he was godless and wicked, and we know he was right because at the end of the story, God vindicated Job and rebuked his three friends. And let's read that today. I keep referring to that, but in chapter forty-two, seven to nine, let's read that. Had spoken these words to Job. Oh, I'm sorry. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite, went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Some people defend Job's friends, actually, saying that they had no way of knowing that even a righteous person could possibly suffer. This seems to have been the first time it ever happened. But the fact is, God doesn't just correct their theology. He is angry with these men. My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. You see, even if they didn't know, I, I am suspicious that they didn't know, but even if they didn't know, they acted like they did know. If they were ignorant, they sure didn't act ignorant. When you're ignorant of something, you need to act humbly, as if you don't know. But they acted like they did know, even though they had no reason for coming to the conclusion that they came to. Now, 7 I said nine chapters of the Bible are filled with the uh, arguments of Job's friends. Um three friends but then the fourth friend shows up and if you add them all together it's actually 17 chapters are filled with the arguments of these friends and these is such a strange portion of scripture because God chides them at the end for the things they've said to Job and so we can't have confidence in what they say that it's right but when we read it so much of it sounds very good even though we know that it's obviously misapplied to Job but if you if you go on sermonaudio.com and start listening to sermons on the book of Job unless you get ones that are in the beginning and the end of Job if anybody tries to deal with the middle of Job all these conversations is back and forth between Job and his friends you'll find that there are many sermons on these passages which begin with a qualification that these things that Job's friends said were wrongly used against Job but that doesn't mean they're not true and of course that's correct and they go on to expound the passage as if it's um, you know what God was saying through them but the fact that they're, it doesn't mean that they're not true doesn't imply that they are true either. We're left a little bit in the dark. So I personally have never felt right about preaching a sermon like that. Even though when you read these sayings of these men, so much of what they said say sounds good and true. Um, but I just don't have the confidence that this is Is inspired obviously the record of what they said is inspired but you know when when uh, the psalmist in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 says the fool says in his heart there is no God well the there is no God part isn't God's Word he's not saying to us there is no God you know he's accurately quoting the, the foolish person who says there's no God But you can't just take what the foolish person says and treat that as if it's God's word to us. And so it's a a difficult question of how to treat this. But anyway, um, this morning we're going to focus, as I said, on the theological error behind the friends' false accusations. Job's friends basically claim that affliction is the consequence and evidence of sin while the righteous person always prospers and I'm going to read a number of just single verses here and there that articulate the same kind of mentality if you just delight in the Lord they said to Job if you just delight in the Lord and lift up your face to him then you will pray and he will hear you you will decide on something and it will be done That's 22, 26, and 27. You know, that's all you need to do, Job, to get rid of these sufferings is delight in the Lord. Just delight in the Lord and it'll all go away. It's sort of a form of superstition. You can control your world by doing certain things. Do this and that will happen. Live right and you'll succeed. Live wrong and you'll fail. Listen to Job 8.20. They said, behold, God will not reject a blameless man or take the hand of evildoers. You know, this is just not the way God operates. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, take a person who's lived right and act like he's his enemy, which is sort of what Job was experiencing. And then Job 8, 6. If you are pure and upright, surely then God will arouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. It's all you need to do. Just be pure and upright, Job, and everything will go smoothly in your life. So for them, the devout soul is exempt, apparently, from the calamities which assail the rest of mankind and therefore afflictions were proof that a person had been living a life of wickedness and godlessness occasionally an entire book of the bible is devoted to making one point very clear and such is the case with job the idea that godly that godliness will inevitably lead to earthly success is smashed to smithereens by the book of Job. If, if they don't use that expression smashed to smithereens anymore, they ought to. The lie that more suffering implies more sin gets blown out of the water by the story of Job. And so this is how they accused Job with this kind of thinking. And when the facts that they saw and had evidence for didn't fit their theory, they adjusted the facts to make them fit. Here is a man, God himself called righteous above others. One who feared God and turned away from evil. And yet these friends supposedly good and wise men, older men with plenty of experience who had personally known Job for years, not only began to suspect him, but accused him of the lowest forms of evil behaviors, all in the absence of even one shred of evidence. And yet they do, they embrace this conviction not as if it's just a theory that they're holding in suspense but as an undeniable reality and then they have the audacity to say this in Job 5.27 behold this we have searched out it is true here And know it for your good, Job. Trust us on this, Job. We've talked about this. We know this. It's true. Just accept it, Job. In other words, we feel so persuaded of this. It's not worth getting in an argument about it. Just accept it, Job. The speech ends with this arrogant exhortation to the poor, tortured Job. And they urged him to change his ways. They, they exhorted him to repent of what he had done, even though he said he hadn't done anything, and they had no evidence that he'd done anything. They kept urging him, assuring him that if he did, his suffering would disappear. If iniquity is in your hand... Put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then, you will lift up your face without blemish. It will even make your acne go away. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery and you will remember it as waters have passed by. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. Just, just Job, just get rid of your iniquity. Just throw it to the side. Just repent of it. And everything will be bright and shiny in your life. But of course, they were wrong. The righteous are not exempt from God's curse upon the world and the pain that came with it. Of course, there are certain ways in which... Righteous living tends to lead to an increase of earthly blessedness. You know, you're, you love your neighbor, you do good to the people around you, and they tend to do good things back often. You're honest, you're hardworking, you're responsible, and that is conducive to material success in, in the things of Uh, the world. And not only that, you have a God who's watching over you, providing for your needs. And so there are advantages to uh, righteous living in terms of this. But the fact is there are many righteous, loving, good, honest, hardworking, responsible people who suffer plenty of hardship because of persecution, because of sickness, because of natural disaster, because of a lot of other reasons now that's my attempt to try to summarize and shine a light on the theological air of of Job's friends now let's think about how this applies to us and what lessons we can take away from this that make a difference in our own lives This idea that earthly suffering is meted out according to the level of one's sin. It's important for us to understand this. That this is a lie for a number of reasons. First of all, knowing the truth about this disrupts the human tendency to be good merely for the sake of making the circumstances of your life go well. You hear so many people complaining that they lived right and yet God allowed this terrible thing to happen in their lives. Which reflects the fact that they, they were thinking about life in the same way Job's friends. That if you live right... You know, good things are going to happen to you. And if you live bad, then bad things you can expect. But they feel cheated because it didn't work that way. The idea that Christianity is a way to a life of earthly blessedness is a very popular and very compelling concept for many Christians. When someone gets blessed in some remarkable way in our society, people say things like, Wow, he must be living right. In other words, if you live right, things are gonna happen. You know, one surprise blessings are gonna pop up left and right, and hard things will will steer and go out to someone else. Many Christians all over the world have swallowed this kind of thinking that God wants you rich and healthy and successful and if you just have enough faith all these will be yours and if you weren't healed it's because you didn't have enough faith some even disagree with our interpretation of the book of Job they point to Job 325 which says where Job says the thing that I, the thing that I fear comes upon me and they say you see Job wasn't so righteous after all he didn't really trust the Lord he entertained fears and that's why these things came to him is because he wasn't righteous enough don't ask me what they, how they interpret God's anger toward these friends who were telling Job that very thing Think about if these things were predictable what would it be like if people got blessed in earthly ways consistent with their level of righteousness everybody would be trying so hard to be righteous not because they actually love God but because they're trying to posture themselves to receive earthly blessings but God wants us to love him of course because he's lovable not because he's our sugar daddy As with almost all churches, we've had a number of people in our congregation down through the decades diagnosed with some kind of terminal illness. And a number of of times, some Christian acquaintance will bring them to a healer who prays for them and announces that they've been healed. And then, as it becomes evident, that the disease is still there, there's often a crisis of faith because they put their hope in their expectation of what God would do instead of putting their hope in God himself and trusting that he knows best. The fact is, much as we'd like to, we have no way of controlling what happens in life. God is in control and he will not relinquish that control no matter what we do. Why? It's because if we were at the steering wheel of the universe that would be a disaster. Not only I mean obviously he can't because he's God he has to be in control but think about what would happen if people really were in control. We might think we'd like to be in control but it's the last thing that really we would want God is God. And we are not. God is not controllable. He's not even predictable. Except that we know who he is, that he is good. That he cares for his people. That he promises that he'll only do good for those who love him. The fact is, faith gives us no umbrella that keeps us from getting wet in the rain but faith does help us accept the fact that rain is for our good faith does help us accept the fact that the world is being controlled by a good and all-wise God who cares deeply for the welfare of his people that all things work together for good for them that love God that all things serve the one who serves Christ. That all things are ours if we are Christ's. Faith does not help us see I'm sorry, faith does help us see that happiness is not based on circumstances. True happiness doesn't go away when troubles come. And true happiness isn't established when things go well. As one of our hymns says, Oh, tis not in grief to harm me while thy love is left to me. Oh, twere not in joy to charm me were that joy unmixed with thee. As the Westminster Confession in 21 says, We've been liberated not from affliction, but from the evil of afflictions. If by faith we understand what we're here for, we'll be very slow to call affliction evil or success necessarily good. Secondly, this truth keeps us from pursuing God merely for earthly reasons, for He may well give us little. With regard to earthly pleasures. We've got to be willing to follow Jesus. Even if it brings an avalanche of difficulties. Into our lives. Because happiness isn't about ease. It's not about success. It's not about creature comforts. God is not a big vending machine. Who provides us with the food we want. Rather God himself is the food. That we long for and need. The big question each of us has to face then is this. Is God for me the one who gives me the treasure or is God the one who is the treasure? God does not, God provides us with many good things to enjoy as 1 Timothy 6.17 says but there's a tricky relationship between enjoying God's gifts and enjoying God himself at one point I believe it's in the book of Proverbs there's a prayer that God will give us won't give us too much or too little and we ought to have that desire because the fact is if God gives us too much it often causes us to stumble and and Who's the one that knows what's too much? It's only God. It's so easy for us to worship the created things instead of the creator. This was Satan's whole claim regarding Job, wasn't it? He only serves you because you bless him. And the fact is, there are many who serve God as long as he blesses them. But that's not true faith. True faith trusts God even in the storms, even in the famines, even in the dark nights of the soul. That's what the story of Job is all about. The idea that there is a direct correlation between sin and suffering, it may seem like a subtle error, but there's an enormous amount of damage done by those who teach what these three friends of Job were teaching. As is often the case, Theological error harms people because it spreads lies about God. That's why theology must be done always with care. It cannot be based on what a person thinks is a brilliant idea. It cannot be based on intuition. It cannot be based on what's popular with the people around me. Presumption is a destructive force. The funny thing is how these three smelled arrogance on Job's breath and yet were oblivious to the fact that their own words reeked with arrogance until the end when God confronted them. And in so doing, they inadvertently became Satan's accomplices in this great drama that we call the story of Job. Now, how does this error cause damage. Well, for one thing, it produces false guilt. People who haven't done anything wrong think God is punishing them for something if this understanding is is taught and believed in a certain context. Second of all, it misleads people into thinking that the earthly things are the things that are really important, not what your heart is before God. Third, it ruins the good witness of righteous people by falsely assuming their wickedness. That's exactly what happened with Job. I mean, Job became despised partly because of the way that the three friends reacted to him. They could have been his apologists. They could have been the ones who were, you know, explaining his suffering to the People who would the common people who would easily think that there was some way that God was cursing Job because of his sin. But most of all, the reason that this is so damaging is because it makes nonsense of the cross. At the cross, God turned the expected economic effects on their heads. He uses as I I love these words from the Chronicles of Narnia. He uses the deeper magic. Suffering becomes his weapon of triumph. Defeat becomes his tool of victory. Failure is the way in which Jesus succeeds. Death. Is his path to life. And through the cross, God indicates the manner in which he will bring his people to life and to victory and to success. It is through suffering, it is through failure, it is through defeat. Ultimately, it is through death. The role of suffering is very clear in the New Testament. But there's plenty in the Old Testament which points in the same direction. And the book of Job is one of the great places. The book of Job challenges us to transition from childish faith to mature faith. Childish faith has easy answers as to why things happen. Childish faith allows no reason to be sad. But it's a lot more complicated than that. The Bible is full of the raw emotion of the struggle of faith. We talked about some of those places last week. There is such a thing as a blue believer. And that was Job. And there was nothing wrong with Job being blue. If Job went through what he went through without being blue, we would have to conclude that there was something very wrong about Job's emotional state Hebrews 6 11 says whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him And hey, you know look that from a shallow point of view that verse could be taken as an articulation of childish faith but mature faith knows that God's rewards are not primarily earthly. And mature faith knows that God's presence with his children in the midst of their suffering is one of the greatest manifestations of his reward upon those who seek him. So we've got to be careful about doing theology. Theology cannot be based on what a, what we our intuition tells us by articulating this erroneous theology this this damaging idea the friends of Job hurt Job and hurt the people who were a part of this whole process and we're grateful that God inserted himself and explained it and set it all right at the end for our edification but seeing the damage is part of the lesson for us to learn you know in my work in Presbytery I've seen many church conflicts where both sides in the conflict feel like feel clearly that the other side is acting as the accomplice of Satan. But the body of men that come in from outside, objective, look at the situation and see, actually, both sides are acting as the accomplice of Satan in the situation. And it's so easy to to just inadvertently be the the uh, accomplice of the evil one so we must be humble and careful and loving and compassionate as we as we deal with difficult situations that arise in our lives in our families in our church in our community praise the lord that that he has uh, given us in the book of Job such clear answer to this heresy, this error that, uh, that sin and suffering are so directly tied to each other and, uh, and teaches us that there's a whole realm of things that we just have no idea about and we just have to leave it to God and put our trust in him. Now, we're going to proceed to the Lord's Supper where we remind ourselves of what our Savior did in order to accomplish our salvation and of, his, of the powerful effect of his sufferings and how he was willing and even a joyful, not in the pain itself, But in the product that would come forth from his pain. He endured the torture and the, ultimately, the death upon the cross. That he might achieve his prize. The salvation of his beloved ones. That's us. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank you for your work through your Son in accomplishing our forgiveness and Lord we pray now that we've seen that reality that seen the wonderful thing you've done through his sufferings we pray that you'd help us to trust when you allow us to suffer that we would see and, and trust that you know better than we do And that you have good things in store, even though we're not always given the explanation of what it is at the moment. But dear Lord, we leave it to you, for you are all-knowing and all-wise, and we know that you love us dearly. And the proof of that is that you sent Jesus to the cross for us. Now, as we come to the table, we ask that we would be satisfied with the true food, which is Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.